You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I have some 28 years experience in the RUC. I've investigated quite a lot of murders, and this is certainly the worst in my book. It's every woman's worst nightmare. You go for a night out. You meet someone. You are attacked, and ultimately, it ends in your death. That's what happened to Marion Beatty. They just said they were going for a walk. That was her intentions. What his intentions was, I wasn't sure. You know. It happened in Achnachloy in 1973. She was just 18. The signs are that there was a struggle as a result of which Marion fell the hundred feet to the bottom of the quarry. It's likely that she was either dead or dying when she reached the bottom. It was, I knew right away it was, it was a body lying at the bottom of the quarry. I made the decision because of the injuries that Jad's received keep the coffin closed. Even today, her family still hopes for justice. We would like to make an appeal to anyone who attended the Save the Children dance that night, that yeah. they come forward to give any information that they have. It is vital that we get more information around what happened that night that Marion was murdered. To tell Marion's story, I'm joined by Belfast Telegraph reporter Neve Campbell. Neve, you're very welcome to the Bell Tell once again. When we talk about murders and people like Marion Beatty, and I have to I think I have to just set out why we're talking about Marion Beatty. It's not only just because what happened, Marion, it's because no one was ever charged or convicted of Marion's uh, murder. They lived out their life. And I think that that's why we're talking about this, is not to dig up the past. But I do think whenever we talk about these sort of things, these sort of tragedies, these sort of horrors, I think it's very, very important, as far as we possibly can, to start off by asking, who was Marion Beatty the person? One thing that I thought was very important, and I thought about this before I came on the podcast, was Marion was an 18-year-old girl from Portadown. And I say girl because even though 18 is technically and legally the age that you become an adult, we all know, like I know myself at 18, you're just a teenager. You're still a child, really. And, um, you know, she loved music. The night that she died, she'd been attending a charity sort of barn dance, um, 200 yards, or just mere yards, 
away from where her body was actually found. And um, she was there watching a band, Tuxedo Junction, I believe they were called, that her brother, Isidore, had managed. And she had been there with her best friend, Nula Wilson. So, like all teenagers do, um, you know, they were having fun. There were approximately only around 200 people there. And, you know, maybe that sounds like a lot, but when we think about concerts now, you know, there could be thousands of people there, 200 people in a sort of small rural shed at a, at a small gig. You're fair to say you probably would remember a lot of the people there. Um, so Marianne had been there, you know, thinking that she was just going to have a regular night out with her brother and her best friend. And they had got talking to a, a group of guys. Marion ended up leaving at around, just after 1am, with one, one of the guys she had been chatting to. Nula was, was still there talking to some of the other people. And it was around 2am, so an hour later, when she hadn't returned, her brother and Nula went to the Achnaclay RUC station to report her missing. And her brother actually saw her leaving and he saw this person. In a sense, they knew who she left with or they, or they, or they saw who she left with. Did you get a very good view of the person she was dancing with? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. Do you think you could identify him again if you saw him? Yeah, I could, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think what, what's very striking is that, again, we said there, there wasn't that many people there, but the person she had been with, this unknown man, he had long blonde hair, which must have been quite distinctive. Um, and so when she left the event... Her brother says that he remembers her walking past him with this meal, and he remember he remembers him quite well. So, what I think is is makes this case stand out as well. When he and her friend Nula went to the RUC station to report her missing, Nula said that that there was a policeman there, a plain clothes policeman, and he had also been at the dance, and he had asked Nula to dance. So he had been with this man that Marion had left with and now was was in the police station walking behind the counter. Uh, just an hour later, we, we they, they raised the alarm a mere hour later after they couldn't find her. So it, there was it's not as if there was any space of time. Yeah, no, no, exactly, definitely. So Anula, you know, she later said, that policeman who asked me to dance, like he's bound to have seen that fella from Achnacloy, he's bound to have known him. But it also strikes me about this case with Marion too. So the killer, her killer suspected of throwing her into the quarry which I think was something like 100 feet, 80 feet. Um, and then despite it being pitch dark, they, they clambered into the hole. So it indicates that whoever whoever did kill her had an in-depth knowledge of the area. Um, police found several spent matches around her body, which suggested her killer had stood over her remains and her clothes had also been partially removed. As well as that, you know, I think maybe people could think, oh, maybe she had a bit too much to drink, maybe she fell, but... She also suffered multiple injuries, including a blow to her face, which had left the imprint of a pipe, and she had to be buried in a closed coffin, which is obviously very disturbing and, and for her for her family to know as well. And her brother, who actually was a part of that search party that night to find her, he, he was there as, as part of the group that, that found her remains. And they found her remains relatively quickly, you know, when they, they found her that morning um, one of the details I'm struck by we know she left the event at 1am and according to her watch she had been murdered less than an hour later because her watch was found stopped it was damaged and as you say she she fell a hundred feet 
however that happened. But to be clear, there were other injuries. Yeah, so they definitely believe that she'd been struck, hit multiple times. As we say, like her, her clothing was partially removed and the buttons that had been ripped off her clothes were found in a neat pile nearby. There were cigarette, cigarette butts that were found. There were discarded matches. I don't think it was a, a thought-out, planned, serial killer sort of thing where someone intended to go in and, and find Marion and murder her that night, but I think it was something that was graphic and violent and happened. And as I say, I think it was a local person that had good knowledge of the area to know to, to leave her body there. Well, I suppose that's what some of the clues surrounding this have indicated. And this case has been looked at by people in the past. And these these are some of the, I suppose, the deductions that people make. And as you say, when you consider that the buttons were in a neat pile, someone had been smoking, someone seemed to have been lighting matches in the vicinity. And her clothing had been partially removed and the other injuries. What we can say is that Marion was murdered. We can say that. And we can also say, because of the unusual circumstances, she was from Portadown, she wasn't from Achnachloy, and how she she ended up at this quarry and how she ended up then um, at the bottom of the quarry. We can say that with, with, with no doubt whatsoever. And we can also say, as you said, that who, however she got to the bottom of the quarry, that the, someone in near total darkness clambered down the side of that quarry to where she was found. So these are obviously circumstances which really add to the suspicions around this. They make it uh, clear that she was murdered. One thing to note too, which sort of came out many, many years later, so she was last seen alive going outside with the long-haired male who can't be identified for legal reasons. This is the same individual though. He was witnessed less than 24 hours later in a bookmaker's with scratches on his face. And the betting shop was packed with punters because it was Grand National Day. That person has since been questioned. At the time, the RUC chief superintendent served, he deemed he deemed the murder as vicious and cruel with sadistic overtones which I think just makes you realise how, how graphic and violent and sort of unpredictable it was. Her brother Isidore, who, had, as I said, had been with the search team when they discovered his sister's body, he said that there were issues with the investigation that were apparent almost immediately. One thing that he said, you know, he helped to compose a photo fit of, of the young man who'd left with Marion. He said that he went to the police and he said, that's not what I told you, like that, that description, that's nowhere close to what I told you the person looked like. After we had identified... Marion, the police wanted to take a statement and they wanted to do a photo fit. Could I explain what the person looked like? So Inspector Callahan and some other police officer was writing down all the all the notes and stuff like that there. And then they come back and they showed me the photo fit. I says, that's not what I told you. That's nowhere close to what I told you what the what the person looked like. He then claimed that the police said, OK, like, we'll sort that out. But the wrong photo fit, the one he complained about, is the one that went out to the news. Decades later, the family discovered an arrest had been made in 1973. So probably quite early on in the investigation. But the murder team didn't tell the family about it. And we mentioned that a servant police officer was in the company 
of the man that, that is suspected of murdering, murdering Marion in the hours before the killing, which I think is, is the most shocking element of the story. Because I think they always say as well in murder cases or, or cases where people disappear, the first 24 hours are sort of the most crucial. And I'm sure the family and friends probably thought, well, we've, we've recognised within an hour that she's not back, we'll go looking for her, went to the police straight away. As like our friend Nula saw that police officer, she probably thought, oh, brilliant, he'll maybe know something. They found her body relatively quickly. Then what happened as well, key forensic evidence also went missing, including those cigarette butts and those matches. And her another brother of Marion's, Jared, later said, you know, we were always led to believe there were 42 items. But after a radio broadcast into her killing, there were 52 or 53 items. So there were 10 more items there that the family apparently didn't know about. Um, and all the items are now missing, and part of her file is missing as well. Now, things go missing. We know that. Mm-hmm. And as well as that, you know, in 1973, I, they wouldn't have been aware of advances in DNA evidence, et cetera, et cetera. However, you know, you one would have expect, one would expect when a young 18-year-old girl is murdered that the file, the evidence, that it is least kept for the future. So the family do have a many questions of the RUC, and to, I mean, to that that the serving RUC officer was seen in the company, and then somehow returned to work, was seen in Achnaclay RUC station. So this adds to the family's suspicion uh, around the, the 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 police dealing with the case. We in the media often highlight an unsolved case, and often the family helps us out in that, etc., because they hope that someone's memory is jarred or someone's conscience is jarred and as the police always say that allegiances have changed or some other formula of words like that. So this story came to light again in a a recent BBC programme. Yeah, so, well, first of all, there was a lot of renewed interest in the case because BBC documentary Badlands, which came out earlier this year, it investigated the unsolved killings of four women over four decades and Marion was featured in that, sorry, Murder in the Badlands, it was called. And um, Nula and her brothers, you know, they they went on and they talked on that documentary about all of this. And, you know, I think as well what the family have done, like many families of, of these women, they have kept Marion's name alive. They've kept her case very high profile. Her brother, Jared Beatty, who has continued campaigning for all these years, he, earlier in the year, he told Sunday Life that the family will never give up their fight for justice, even though it is nearly 50 years ago. And he said that Marion means far too much for them to do that. And to know that the man who they believe murdered her is still out there walking the streets, I, I don't think they ever will give up. And I think the renewed interest has helped as well. As we talked about last year, what I found really interesting as well, after the PSNA learned that Marion's murder was going to be the subject of this documentary, an individual, the person, the one sort of suspect in this case, was questioned by police, but there have been no further developments since then. That's interesting that someone is questioned mm-hmm. after almost 50 years at that stage, mm-hmm. and that happened because of a, of a documentary being made. So... As as it's been said by our crime correspondent, Alison Morris, if you want justice, if you're very active and you can push this and you get friends and, you know, in the media, etc. That's the way, unfortunately, if you want to push um, 
a very busy PSNI in this case into looking at into cases. But I mean, it is this case is now it's not being ignored. It's with it's with the legacy investigations branch. Yeah, so that's a wee bit controversial for the family as well. Um, so the legacy investigations branch, it has said that it has assessed the value of information passed to it by Marion's family, and. They said that they are, and this is a direct quote, resolved to investigate any new credible lines of inquiry. What's also sort of important to note, though, that they're very busy themselves. Um, Marion's death, very brutal death, is among 133 killings not related to the Troubles, which are now the responsibility of the legacy branch, and its workload totals almost 1,000 cases, including paramilitary and security force killings. Um, Susan McKay, the TV crime series consultant, she says that the transfer of the case to the legacy branch is unexplained. Marion's family said they don't really, they've been kept, they feel like they've been kept in the dark as to why it was passed to them. Because I think, I mean, it is an old case in the sense that it's almost 50 years ago, but as we say, they're looking into paramilitary and security force killings as well. I don't think they really knew why it had been passed on to them. Um, a criminologist, Robert Giles, you know, he said he also looked at the case and established the identity of a potential suspect, which was passed to the police in 2020. That is the person that that was questioned. An anonymous letter pointing to that person again was passed to the Pat Finnegan Centre in 2019. So now this person can't be named, obviously, for legal reasons, but it's known that they went on to have a long career in the prison service. They haven't been charged. They haven't been prosecuted. We can only say that this person's been questioned by the police on one occasion. That's all we can say with certainty. They, I, yeah, they actually went in to be questioned voluntarily. So they, they voluntarily went in to the police to be questioned under caution and nothing came from it. And that's whenever the legacy branch said, you know, that they are still resolved to investigate. The, the suspect also, what we, what we do know, they had a relative in the RUC and their father was a senior loyalist paramilitary. Um, they had a long career before retiring with distinction. So we also reported in the Sunday Life that one colleague described him as a really decent guy and expressed shock that he possibly could be suspected of murdering Marion. But the Beatty family do and have always believed that, that her killer was protected from prosecution because of his family links to the police and loyalist paramilitaries. No. That's what the family believe. Yeah. We we cannot substantiate that one way or the other. But what we can say with absolute certainty is from day one, from, from minute one of this nightmare for them, they were very displeased with how the RUC at the time dealt with this case. Yeah, 100%. Like, as I said, her brother who had found her body um, as part of the search party, he said from, from the get-go that, the RUC response just wasn't wasn't adequate, wasn't sufficient, wasn't up to scratch. Um, he described the last person that he had seen Marion alive with and they had put a photo fit out into the media. He had said to them that that isn't what I described to you. That looks nothing like the person I depicted and it's wrong. And they said, that's okay, you know, we'll take care of it. But he says, like he, this is what he claims, that is the photo fit that then went out to the news, the one that he said wasn't right. Um, you know, and as well, evidence has been missing over the years. They obviously believe that it is something to do with links within the RUC, but that is their belief. And, 
you know, I think whenever you're you're desperate to find your sister or your daughter or your friend's killer, you'll you'll grasp at anything, any sort of hope. But they believe from day one that if the RUC investigation had have been done better and certain lines of inquiry had have been pursued, that, that maybe they would have found Marion's killer. The family have always believed the police investigation at the time wasn't good enough and they were right. Today, Marion's family met with the police ombudsman to be told what they always knew. Police failed them. I've done a number of podcasts very similar to this podcast and, and I'm always struck by the, by the similarities. And like so many of those other cases that I've done, like the family believe fundamentally, and I, this is what strikes me, that they believe that they know who this, I mean, they know who this suspect is and they believe that this person murdered their sister. That's the case. Yeah, now, I don't think they knew who that person was straight away, by any means. They've been following this for 49 years. Like, that's a, an incredibly long time and I'm sure that they have tried to look at every possible avenue and every line of inquiry. But... I think the thing that does stand out is the fact that the person that left with Marion that night that had distinctive long blonde hair, which is probably unusual for a male, at the, a young male at the time to have. And and, and let's point out, we, we're talking about Ach here. Yeah. <laughs> rural, rural Tyrone. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, people mightn't be aware of Ach is a small village in Tyrone, South Tyrone on the border of County Monaghan. Yeah. And then the fact as well, like eyewitnesses say, as we said, that there were around 200 people in the shed at this dance. The person that Marion left with had been with another group of boys and one of his friends had asked her friend Nula to dance. And this person, Nula later realised, was a police officer because he was walking around behind the counter in the Achnacloy RUC station in plain clothes. So she thought, oh, well, there's a guy that asked me to dance that was friends with the guy that Marion left with, so he obviously knows who he is or he'll know who he is. Um you'll know of him sorry even if he's not his friend but that never came to fruition or you know as I said the family only found out years and years later decades later that one person had been questioned in 1973 and nothing came of it I think they're thinking I think they've probably lost a bit of faith because they're thinking why weren't we told this information Um, why weren't we told about the 52 or 53 items of evidence that have now gone missing um, they didn't even know that there were that many numbers of items. Um, so I think because it was such a small dance, it was in such a small village in Achenkloy, one of those places where the old saying goes, everyone knows everyone. I think that's why they say like the dogs in the street know who it is. But again, that's not how the law works. That's not how police work works. Um, and it's not necessarily the case either. No, no, definitely not. And this person, this suspect, and again, that's all we can say. That's all yeah. we are saying. He's a suspect. But this person is still alive, Neve. This person's still alive. He would be in his 60s now. I, I said before, I talked before about how colleagues that worked with him during his, his long career in the prison service, his long career in the prison service, which as far as I can tell, had no controversies or criminal, you know, I don't even think he was wrapped in the knuckles for anything. Um, that certainly hasn't been hasn't been made known to the public anyway. 
So his colleagues have said that, you know, he was a good good person to work with, a decent guy, and they were genuinely shocked that he would even be considered as a suspect. He wasn't arrested either. This is the other thing. He wasn't arrested for questioning by the police. He went into the police station voluntarily under caution. And that, you know, nothing, nothing further came from that. But he is the only person that police in almost 50 years have spoken to. And this happened in 1973. It was a long time ago and it was at the absolute height of the troubles. Having said that, it didn't happen 200 years ago. And there's no, from what we've, when we've been researching this case, and yet there's no evidence. I can find nothing to indicate to me that the RUC took this seriously for a minute. No, and at the same time, like you said, Kieran, we have to think about the RUC had a lot of other things going on at the time, the height of the Troubles. I'm sure maybe initially this might have been investigated as a, was this a Troubles related? Was this sectarian? Was this paramilitary related? Um, I think that was ruled out fairly quickly. But since then, yeah, like clothing samples were taken from the scene. Marion's hair samples were taken from the scene. Objects that were found around her and discarded around her were taken from the scene. And nothing ever, I know forensic DNA evidence wouldn't have been really that complex back then, but nothing was ever either found from it or it was never revealed to her family if anything was found from it. So I think the family, I think the general view is that it was taken to be quite lax and anything that did happen, you know, why did the family only find out about it decades later? And I think even, you know, they're sceptical as to whether it did happen if they're only finding out decades later. But I think is the way you said as well, the fact that people sometimes think they're flogging a dead horse, you know, like stop going on about this or whatever. But as we said, you know, police found out that it was going to be mentioned in, in a pretty high profile documentary again. And and they did go and do something about it. I know nothing came from that, but it just goes to show that you really can't talk about anything too much. You've been looking at this case and, the, you know, almost 50 years have, have passed and there's a level of detachment. But whenever we get past that detachment and whenever we look at the details of this story and how it was handled and what happened, Marion, this truly is a shocking story and it really doesn't deserve to be forgotten at the start and it doesn't deserve to be unsolved. Yeah, and I think as well, there's a massive element in journalism and news writing and reporting where facts and figures are put down in black and white and it can seem quite cold, like this person was murdered and um, you know, like her, her face was so badly beaten that the coffin had to be closed. And as journalists, that's how we write it, but because you just have to you just have to show the bare facts. But when you think about that emotionally, that is every woman's nightmare. And you said at the start, Kieran, as well, and whether that happens in 1973 or in 2022 or in 2063 because it, sorry to say but I don't think things like this are going to stop happening um, and as I say she was 18 and she just went out for a night with her friends and I had interviewed Joanne Dorian the sister of Lisa Dorian on this podcast as well a little while back and Lisa was also featured on the Murder in the Badlands documentary as well and similarly she was 25 she went for a party with her friends and her body her body hasn't even been found Um, you know and it really could happen to anyone. It's not like these women are going out looking for trouble, you know, starting fights, starting controversies. Like, she just went out for a night with her brother and her best friend and, and met a guy 
and left and then she was murdered and I know I was saying to you beforehand too it's every woman's worst nightmare to, to go out for a night out and be murdered but it's my worst nightmare to go out be murdered and for no one to ever find out who did that to me and for my family to never have that closure and I think that's the scariest thing about it and even though it did happen almost 50 years ago I just think if my sister or cousin or auntie or mum or whatever was murdered I don't think I would forget about it 49 years later especially if I didn't know who the killer was or if I thought I knew who the killer was or if I thought the police hadn't done their job properly I would definitely still be for 100 years as long as I was alive I would still be trying to push that and trying to find out so I think that's important that the Beatty family still keep doing that. Neve Campbell, thank you. Thank you, Kieran. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from Murder in the Badlands, and that was a documentary made for BBC Northern Ireland by Fine Point Films, the BBC and UTV. You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland.